have to start speaking first. Hey guys, how's everyone doing tonight? Awesome. That's better than I am, so what do you know? <laughs> I'll be your sub tonight. My name is Jake Thompson. I'll sound completely different than Cameron. All you uh, podcasters out there. We're starting right with the message right now. Kind of a backwards night tonight, so um, we're going to start right into the message tonight. Um, and I'm waiting. Someone stole my stool and forgot to replace it. So I stand quite, uh, think, yeah, it's funny. It's funny when people take stuff and don't be responsible, isn't it? Isn't that funny? It's great. So I'll just hold the stuff in front of me, and we'll start like that, and someone will, dear God, please bring me my stool. So um, tonight we're actually continuing what we talked about last week with repentance. Uh, if you guys were here, I'll give you a quick recap. If you weren't here, um, I'll just let you kind of know about it. As I do that, I'll always pass around the offering. Go ahead. Um, and if someone would please be so kind as to get my water, which is in the back, because I'm really, really jacked up tonight. Um, I've been tremendously, tremendously sick for the past couple days. Um, just a quick little thing for you guys. I don't know if you've ever been in this spot or not, but funny little story for you. Have you ever had so much snot in your nostrils that when you blow your nose, it's more than the Kleenex can handle? Like um, enough where you blow your nose, and instead of just going into the Kleenex there, so much comes out that it lands on your chin. You been there? Yep, yep. That, my friend, that, my friend, is a real nose blow. That is a man's nose blow. All right. So we're continuing on with our repentance. And like I said, a quick recap for you guys. Um, last, night we t- I mean, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, in Matthew four seventeen, And we said, if Jesus Christ said this, and we don't have a strong base on what repent means, then we're just lost. And we have to know that because Jesus didn't say stuff just for fun. He said stuff that was important. We talked about the fact that in the original Greek, repent is the word metanoite, which comes from metaneo, which means to change your mind. And we talked about the fact, though, that it, it's not just a mind change. Because it's not just like, like I said last week, like, ah, I think I'm going to have, you know, cornflakes for breakfast. Ah, no, nah, I think I'll have, like, frosty flakes or, you know, fruity pebbles. Like, not that kind of mind change, but like a real, like, crazy mind change, like heart change, like the whole entire way you look at something change, big time change. That's what it represents. And also that the word repent, is linked to an ancient Hebrew word, which is nacham, which means like a repentant sorry, a deep sorriness inside of you, um, regret for what had happened. We talked about the fact that also this word repent, metanoite, is often and most commonly linked with this word epistrophine, which means to turn. It's a verb. And this word of a mind change in the Bible of repent which many of us just think is like, oh, I'm sorry. This word of, of a mind change is linked to this, this action verb, to turn. What it means is that repent carries with it an action, a turning away. And we talked about the fact that this sad heart and this decision to, cha- to change must be followed with a physical change in our lives. That we can't just say it. It's not enough just to speak the words. Like I said, talk is cheap, but you have to back that up with your physical action. We saw all this by looking at Josiah in 2 Kings, this crazy story of this king who found out that most all of what he believed in was completely wrong. 
They found the, the ancient, what they call the book of Revelation, which Moses wrote about what was right and wrong. And when he heard about it, it just broke his heart because he realized that he wasn't doing any of it. And he had that repentant heart. He changed and he followed it by his actions. I was thinking about this week and um, <coughs> I was thinking about people who don't back it up with, with real action. I was just thinking about what happens in a relationship, okay? You're in a relationship with somebody and by some crazy coincidence or strange happenings, you just so happen to cheat on the person you're with. But you come back and you say, you know what, I'm really, really sorry. And there's a lot, man, a lot of, of argument, a lot of conversation. And you say, I'm really going to make a change. If you go back out and you have sex with that person again, did it really do anything? Did it mean anything? It didn't mean anything, did it? And I was just thinking about that, the kind of thing when we were talking about this action backing up a changed mind. You know what I mean? You wouldn't say that the, the, the person in that, in that instance, in that relationship, they didn't change their mind for a minute, did they? Because you'd back it up with your action. Exactly. And that's what we talked about last week. There's this repentance is much bigger than just feeling sorry. But it has a lot more with it, this metanoite. And um, we're going to move on from there tonight. When we stopped last week, we were talking a lot about that initial, that initial heart change of salvation. And I said there's more than this. It goes a lot deeper than this, a lot farther in our relationship with God. And that's really where I want to pick up tonight. <coughs> when I ended last week, I talked about the fact that salvation did not exist without repentance. And that's completely true. It's completely true. Without repentance, there is no such thing as salvation. But after salvation, repentance does not stop. Repentance continues throughout our salvation. Salvation isn't one moment. It's not saying the words one night and then saying, oh, I'm saved and I'm taken care of. But salvation is an everyday thing. It's an everyday thing. And that's the same with the repentance. Some people, maybe even the audience last week, were thinking, I already got this covered. I already repented. I already turned. I already got this taken care of. But as a Christian, when you really get down to it, you realize that you have been called to a life of repentance. Not a moment, not a few minutes, not every so often, but a life of repentance. That's what you've been called to. As we go through our lives and with our relationship with Christ, there's going to be times where the Spirit is just going to put conviction on us. There's going to be times where it feels heavy inside of our heart. Um, just like that first time. That first time when we realize that something wasn't right. We realize that this isn't good enough. That what I'm doing isn't right. And that I have to turn away from this. That that same kind of feeling will come on us again. That same type of heaviness. Even though that was already taken care of. Man, I've already said, Jesus Christ, I believe in you. But that same type of heaviness would come on us. And we realize that it's time to repent again. We must act once again. Just because we repented once doesn't mean that we're going to stay on the exactly right path. It's the reality of life. Josiah, the man who we talked about last week as this beautiful picture, this beautiful picture of repentance and everything that he went through. And I mean, we, we talked about how perfectly he embodied what repentance was, his heart changed and his mind changed and his actions that came along with it. What's interesting is if we go just a few books later in Second Chronicles, and you guys don't have to turn there, because I'm just going to read it for you. But it's Second Chronicles 35 and 20, and it's talking about the end of Josiah's reign. And it says this, Sometime later, after Josiah's reformation of the temple, that's where he threw everything away and he cleaned it all out, that 
epistrephine type of repentance. Necho, king of Egypt, marched out towards Carchemish on the Euphrates River on his way to war. Josiah went out to fight him. Necho sent messengers to Josiah saying, What do we have against each other, O king of Judah? I haven't come to fight against you, but against the country with whom I'm at war. God commanded me to hurry, so don't get in my way. You'll only interfere with God, who is on my side in this, and he'll destroy you. But Josiah was spoiling for a fight and wouldn't listen to a thing that Necho said. In actuality, it was God who said it. Though King Josiah disguised himself when he met on the plain of Megiddo, archers shot him anyway. The king said to his servants, Get me out of here, I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of his chariot and laid him down in an ambulance chariot and drove him back to Jerusalem. He died there and was buried in the family cemetery. So last week, this man that we talked about, who when he realized what was wrong, he completely changed his life, and he repented and he embodied that. We see that by the end of his life, he really wasn't nearly as focused as he was then, didn't he? That he turned away. And it's not to say that what he did was horrible, because when you look at that, you're like, well, he just wanted to fight, but you realize God was against him in that. God didn't want him to fight, but he was stubborn. He was stubborn, and he wanted to anyway. I wholeheartedly don't believe that that was the end that God wanted for Josiah. When I read that story about dressing up like he's, like he's some other warrior and getting shot by accident, I wholeheartedly don't believe that that was the end God wanted for this man who completely reformed Judah. There was probably something much more special. But the reality is, is you could see the fact that without that continual repentance that he could get sidetracked and we saw it get taken away. Once we have a relationship with Jesus, we must continue repentance. We'll often find ourselves in need to repent because of a few situations, and I just want to lay these out for you, just a few situations that I've seen that consistently bring me back to repentance and people who I know as Christians. Always bring them back. And the first is that we lose sight of what we know. This is kind of a distinctly human thing. <laughs> lose sight of what we already know. Like Josiah, we can know the truth, but we can still get off course. Even though we know what's right, we can still look in a different direction. In Galatians 2 and uh, in 11, Peter's, I mean, Peter is uh, hanging out with friends, and Paul writes this um, about when he ends up coming and talking to him. It says, Later when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in in the charade. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? I love this. It's such, a, it's such an awesome story about Paul um, and about his, his strong leadership that he wasn't afraid to speak to someone who was in much, higher, in much higher esteem than him. Peter was the foundation of the church at that time. I mean, he was the cornerstone. If there was anyone who you could point to that represented the church, it was Peter. 
He was the embodiment of what the church represented. But you know what? Even Peter got off course. Even Peter, knowing what was right, and having repented and turned away, and really wanting to wholeheartedly follow God, he still got off course. He lost sight of what he already knew. And the exact same thing, the exact same thing can happen to us. Way too often, we can lose focus on what we know, and it takes, man, hopefully, a friend like Paul. Not an enemy like Paul, because Paul didn't have something against Peter, but he was a friend, and he realized that this isn't who Peter wanted to be, and he was willing to call him out and say, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You're just being a hypocrite in what you say and what you do. Man, the same thing happens to us. There's been times I've had people mention stuff like this to me in the past. Long, long time ago when I was... um, when I was first, I don't know, saved, whatever, you can take that any way you want. But when I was really, really young in my faith, I was dating this girl, and she wasn't a, she wasn't a Christian at all. Um, she went to church. And I remember someone stopped me one time, and they said, Hey, Cameron, um, I noticed you have a ring around your neck. And so are you dating someone? I said, Yeah, I'm dating this girl. And they said, Is she a Christian? And I said, Well, she goes to church. And they said, Yeah, but is she a Christian? And I said, I think she believes. And they stopped me and they said, but is she a Christian? Does she believe what you believe? I knew it was right, but I lost sight of it. And it took somebody putting that weight on my shoulders and saying, you know what's right. You know what's better. That I wasn't meant to be with somebody like that who didn't share the same beliefs as me. It wasn't right. And it took someone just like that, that Paul, who's willing to stand out and say something like that. So even if we were Christians, we can still lose faith just a little bit. We can lose that focus and we can turn our lives in a direction that isn't right. And we need to come to that point where we repent and say, wow, that's not right, God. I'm sorry. The same thing happened to me. We need people like Paul. We need people to take and put it in our face so we can turn in our minds and we can turn in our bodies. Second thing I notice on why we end up up having to continually repent is the fact that we hold on to things that aren't good for us. We hold on to things that aren't good for us at all. When we first get saved, you know what? It can almost seem easy. And, and please, anyone who's newly saved, don't let me at all um, offend you by one instance because I know that it's really, really hard. But especially as you get farther along, that initial stuff seemed easy. What I mean is this. is You get saved and those things really just seem to stand out as wrong in your life. There's things that just blatantly seem wrong and you're like, hey, you know what? I need to take care of this. You know, I repent of, you know, my drunkenness. You know, I repent of the fact that I'm just having sex with anybody. and I repent the fact, God, that I'm doing, you know, smoking dope on the weekends, whatever. And, you know, those things really stand out. And you're like, you know, God, I'm sorry. I repent, and I'm not going to do those things anymore. What happens is we move along as we focus more on God. He shines a spotlight on things in our life that used to seem okay. See, at first, those big things just kind of stand out, and we go through them. But after a while, it comes that even smaller things that initially we didn't even see, God puts a spotlight on, and conviction comes on our heart. And we look at it and say, you're right. That's not right in my life, is it, either? You look at it and say, you know, I don't want that for my life, either. Even though, man, three, four months ago, that seemed fine. When I look at it now, I realize that that's not supposed to be part of my life. This is really, really common in our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's going to point out stuff that sometimes doesn't even look like sin. And sometimes, even crazier, isn't sin. 
It isn't a sin on its own, but we made it into it. Here's what I mean. There's uh, a story in Matthew 19, and uh, Matthew 19, 16 through 26. Jesus is teaching, and it says, Another day a man stopped Jesus and asked him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you question me about what's good? God is the one who is good. If you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. And the man asked, What in particular? Jesus said, Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the young man said, I've done all that. What's left? If you want to give it all, all you've got, Jesus replied, go sell your possessions. Give everything to the poor. Allow your, all your wealth will then be in heaven. Then come follow me. This is, that was the last thing the young man expected to hear. And so crestfallen, he walked away. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he couldn't bear to let it go. As he watched him go, Jesus told his disciples, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for a rich to get into the kingdom of God? Let me tell you, it's easier to gallop a camel through a needle's eye than for the rich to enter God's kingdom. And the disciples were staggered. Then who has any chance at all? And Jesus looked hard at them and said, No chance. No chance at all if you think that you can pull it off by yourself. But every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. God will shine this convicting light on things in our life that don't even look like sin. And like I said, sometimes they aren't even sin. This man had followed what God's will was for his life. All these rules that he had been, he had been told. And he followed them because he really, really understood it. But the problem is, is money in this man's life. Money isn't sinful, but he had made it into something sinful. Because it was such a, it's such a hold in his life. It was such a big deal in his life that that was his focus even more than God. And see, God knows stuff like that about us deep inside. That there's things that we put before him that we say, God, I'll serve you with everything I got except this. And God will go through and he'll point out things that are wrong, but then sooner or later he'll get to those things. And he'll point at them and say, well, what about that? It might not be sin, but the way you're treating it, it's sinful. And that conviction falls on us, and we have to repent. We have to realize the fact that God's worth more than all that and come to a place where we realize, I will change. I will turn from what I believe, and I'll make a difference in my life. This can be anything with us. It could be money. It could be our job. It could be a girlfriend, a boyfriend. It could be a relationship with, with a relative. It could be an attitude. Yeah, an attitude. It could be you wanting to have your smart butt, cocky, I'm a mean SOB attitude. And God can point out and say, you know what, that's not me. That's not me at all. You think about that, an attitude. But God can point out that and say, no, that's not right. And you have to repent and say, you know what, I'm willing to give that up. And I'm willing to turn from that because I believe. That continued repentance. That continued repentance. I knew a guy, actually, he told me one time, um, he's a drummer. He had this massive drum set. He was in a band for, like, years. It's massive, back in, like, the 80s drum sets. You know which ones I'm talking about? Like, the ones with, like, 300 pieces. He had this drum set, and he's playing in a band. He's a Christian, and God told him, sell your drum set. He said, I'm like, what? He prayed and prayed and prayed about this, and, like, for six months straight, God said, sell your drum set. Sell your drum set. He was so weird. He finally sold his drum set. And, like, everything in his life changed. 
And we finally prayed about it to God. God said, you were actually making an idol out of that drum set and everything that it represented. Because it didn't just represent the drum set, but it represented that life, that hardcore, you know, I'm a drummer in a band life. And when he did, his life completely changed for the better. Something that simple, you understand? But God might point to it, and you might be like, that doesn't even make sense. Pray about it, and it might make sense. The other thing that I notice of why we have continual repentance as a Christian is that we don't do what we're supposed to do. What does that mean? Well, it's really true. Um, if we're Christians and we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it, that's sinning. It says that in the Bible. It says in James 4.17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It means as a Christian, those things that you know you should speak, those people you know you should help, those people that you know um, could just use just a second of your time, those times you know you should be quiet, and you don't follow those, you're sinning. Well, that seems harsh. It seems harsh, but it's not. See, God has amazing plans for our lives. He didn't save us just to sit around and be lazy here on earth. It's like a worker, okay? And if I hire you, if I hire you as, as, as the person working with me, I have tasks that I'm going to give you. A boss will take and say, you know what, by the end of the day, I'd really like this done. By the end of the week, I would really like this done. By the end of the month, this project needs to be finished. And what happens if you don't do any of your projects? You're going to get fired. You're going to get in trouble, aren't you? They're going to say, dude, what's the deal? I gave you this last week. Have you been working on this? Say, this can't be. You know, if I'm taking and I'm paying you, Christ paid for us. I'm taking and I'm paying you, I expect to see results. If we don't do those things, we're sinning. There's things that God has laid out for us. And man, I, don't, I, don't, I can't even tell you, tell you how many times I've come to God in repentance for the things that I haven't done that I know I should have. That's a very common one. How many times I've asked God for forgiveness for conversations that I knew I should have said something and I didn't. How many times I do walk away and realize, like I said, I should have just been quiet. That was stupid. That wasn't right at all. When you know things are right, but you don't do them, that's sin. And we need to repent of that. All these things that I've been talking about here, these, these three distinctive things that I specifically pointed out, all of these things create a distance between us from God. They create this, this strange separation, this feeling of separation between us and God. And you know why? Because it hurts God. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this or not before, but it says in the Bible that when we sin, we hurt God's feelings. It says this in Ephesians 4.30 and 32. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all the cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. We hurt God when we stand far off in our sin. We hurt God when we walk away so we can hang out in our dark alleys away from God. We hide from them so we can play around with sin. We hurt God's feelings. Have you ever thought about that? With the fact that God really cares about you. It's like a dad. You know what I mean? Most all of us have had dads. Some of you guys, I know people have different stories. Some people like that. I never had a dad that really cared for me. But parents, or even just you thinking about when you have kids someday, 
you want your kid to love you. And you want to love your kid. And when your kid just like completely turns away and doesn't follow anything that you say, it hurts. You know what I mean? Like my dad told me, you know, like, well, he did. He's like, you know, I really, Cameron, I, I really do not want you drinking. Cameron, I really, really expect you that you are never going to touch drugs when you're in high school. I didn't because I really respected my dad. But I mean, like, when you take and you turn away from things that your parents lay out because they love you, it hurts. Man, it hurts. You know? That's the same, same exact deal with God is that we hurt, we hurt him when we turn away and we focus on our sin instead of him. I also like the fact that it, the comments that God has on our relationships, that really focuses back on our repentance too, doesn't it, as well? When I talked about an attitude and stuff like that, talking about that, that backbiting, profane talk and not forgiving each other, the same kind of thing that, where that repentance is necessary. James, which James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I've been studying James um, actually for a while now. Um, and it, man, it is a surprisingly, surprisingly amazing book um, written by, by Jesus Christ's brother. And um, in chapter 4, he gives us this really, really awesome view of what our relationship with God should be like. And when I read this time and time again, I realize this is the picture. This is the picture of what we're supposed to be like as Christians. It says this. I'm going to start in, um, in 4. It says, You're cheating on God if all you want is your own way. Flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose that God doesn't care? The proverb has, has it that he is a fiercely jealous, love, jealous lover, and what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. So let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master because it's the only way that you'll be able to get on your feet. I love that, that picture that James gives. of saying, you know what, just... Seriously, quit playing the game. Quit playing the game and acting like you really care and just dabbling in sin and playing with it every chance you get. And he says, you know, you're becoming the enemy of God. And he talks about the seriousness of sin where he says, you know what, there isn't going to be any cheap grace. There's not going to be any cheap grace. When you come back to God and you realize that you've sinned, you cry your eyes out because you realize how much you've hurt God. I was just thinking about that even tonight when I, when I wrote this message uh, the other day. Just thinking about it, the fact of of cheap grace. I heard I heard an old preacher. I don't remember what his name was, but he said, "You know, I, he says what's scary is the fact that cheap grace could do more damage to the calling of Christ than what works justification ever could have." Works justification is thinking the fact that by doing things good for God, I can get into heaven. But he says, "You know what? Cheap grace may have done more damage." And what that is is that that's that really really common nowadays Christian mindset of when you sin, just figuring, ah, oh, Jesus Christ covered it. It's okay. You come back and you're like, God, I'm sorry for that. But you realize the fact that that freedom cost a lot. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap to be able to say that you're forgiven. It was extremely, extremely expensive. I always like to parallel it to the fact of our freedom. Man, it, freedom is cheap here, isn't it? Didn't cost me anything to be free. I was born here. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. It didn't cost me a dime. 
Or do you have any idea how much price was paid so that I can be free today? How many men gave their lives throughout countless wars to protect that freedom so that today when I wake up, I have it for free? How many men willingly sacrificed their lives, their limbs, their youth in order to pay for that? That's when it starts to make sense. And you realize the same thing with Jesus Christ. That that freedom that he gives us where he says, if you believe in me, you know what? All that sin can be washed away and you can be free from it and you can be new again. You know what? It seems free, but it costs a lot. Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on a cross to pay for our sins. Because someone had to die for it. So Jesus Christ, because he loved us so much, came to this earth and died for our sins so we didn't have to. It cost a lot. And it's not cheap. When you come in repentance, it shouldn't just be, God, you know what, I'm sorry. But you should come with a real heart saying, God, I'm very sorry. I'm so sorry for the fact that you have to live in such a dirty man. For the fact that you have to live in such an unclean vessel. I'm sorry for the fact that I've turned away from you yet again. Once again, I've been called and just swept up in what this world has. I'm sorry, and I just pray, please, please forgive me. It's not who I want to be. And I'm going to fight against it as hard as I can. A lot of times when these, when these hard times come, and when these times away from God come with this, with this unrepentant heart, because that's what happens. A lot of times we get caught up in this stuff, and we don't come to a place of repentance. We feel separated from God. And there's this great picture of how our relationship works with God. It comes all the way back from the Old Testament um, after Solomon dedicated this temple to God. And God said that he was going to come and he was going to live in this temple. He made this temple there and God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to live in that and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be here as soon as you turn around and you pray to me. I am right here. I'm not going to, you know, do you have any idea the amazingness of thinking the fact that God was like right in your backyard back then? He's like, you are going to be my people. But what's really interesting is he talks about this relationship and it comes in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 14. He says, If I ever shut off the supply of rain from the skies or order the locusts to eat the crops or send a plague on my people. It's really interesting. He's talking about, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to be there. And then he stops and says, If I ever shut off the supply of grain, send locusts, send a plague, and my people, my God-defined people, respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my presence and turning their backs on their wicked lives, I'll be there ready for you. I'll listen from heaven, I'll forgive their sins, and I'll restore their land to health. This is such an interesting comments that he said to the Israelites back then. Like I said, he just got done talking about how he's going to be there. But he says, when this moment comes, and he gives this picture of of what's going to happen, this was said to the Israelites, but the same thing can be applied to our lives today. Same thing crosses over thousands of years and into our relationship with God today. A picture of what happens when we turn away, a picture of what we need to do, how we repent, and a picture of how God responds. There's times when we notice that everything isn't right, and this is where the picture comes into place. It says these things, and think about it. I mean, like a list. I'm a very linear person. It says that if you humble yourselves, Come to that place where you say, you know what, I am not God, and you are. You are God, and I am not. I cannot make my own decisions wisely. I've tried it, and I've fallen flat on my face time and time again. It's a joke, what I've made in my life. And really, this is Nacham, 
what we talked about earlier. This is that repentant heart. By praying, this is communication with God. You know what happens a lot of times when we turn away from God and we're distant? That prayer life starts to diminish. Even as Christians, we realize, man, I haven't said a word to God. In a day, in a week, in a month. And it's reinstituting that prayer. It's reinstituting that prayer and talking with God. Just reconnecting. That's that metanoite. That's that change inside of us. Seeking his presence. Seeking out his answers. Saying that what I have isn't, isn't enough. I have to follow what you have for me. A change of mind. That's metanoite. That's seeking out his answers, not ours. And it says, by turning our back on our wicked lives. That's epistrophe. That's pushing the old stuff away, not letting it be part of our life anymore. Saying that it's no longer going to be my life. Now that, that list they laid out of what we're supposed to do when we repent, that's really, really good. But what's really beautiful about it is what God's response to it is. That's what's even more amazing, the beauty of it is God says that when you do these things, I'll listen from heaven. It means that he's going to open a channel to hear us, that he's going to reconnect with us. That even though we hurt him, he's going to take and bring us back in and really listen to us. It says he'll forgive our sins, taking away all the sin. Just like I talked about earlier, Jesus Christ, man, came to this earth to die on a cross so that you can go to heaven someday. The wages of sin is death. We've all earned death. But God come in the body of Jesus Christ, and he died to pay for those sins. It says if we believe in him and we make him our Lord, the Lord, the commander of our life, that when we die, we go on to eternity with Jesus Christ and with God in heaven. That he will forgive us of our sins. And it says that he'll restore their land, which is kind of a weird when people are like, restore my land? It doesn't make any sense. But what God's talking about here is he's talking about healing your life here. Not just the fact that he's going to take away your sin. And you know what? You're set. When you die, you're going to heaven. But because God loves you so much, the fact that he says, I'm going to heal your life today. A lot of that crap that's on your life because of all the stupid things you do, I'm going to take and clean you up. Because I love you and I don't want that to be part of your life. A lot of that stuff that you piled up on it, a lot of that garbage that you put in your life, I'm going to come through and I'm going to wash it away. Because I love you and I'm going to take and, that's what it means, heal your land. Fix your problems today, here help you out. I can't tell you how many people I've heard about when God's seriously healing them where they're at and changing things in their life. Some of you are probably, even, even after listening to this, are probably thinking, you know what, this sounds great in theory. Sounds great in theory. But I am a Christian. I have consistently fallen away and I've tried to consistently repent, but you know what, it hasn't worked. Some of you guys are saying, you know, Maybe even the first two. Maybe I've really felt that, that repentant heart. Maybe I've, maybe I've actually had that metanoite, that change in my mind. But you know what? The life change never seems to stick. It never seems to really work out. There's this awesome verse. Man, awesome verse in Romans. The writer says this. It's in, uh, if you guys want to turn there. It's Romans 7, 21 is where it starts. He's talking all about, and all about life and about sin and everything. But it starts here. It says, in the message, but I need something more. For I know the law, but I still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. Sounds pretty familiar, huh? I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. 
My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep inside of me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly rebels, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can, who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? This is the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud, a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. That's such a picture of my life sometimes, and I, I know probably people out in the audience do. Sometimes where it seems like, man, I've had that change, and like he says, I really do delight in the commands of God, but obviously not all of me does because there's always something fighting against me from deep down inside. Even when I decide, like he says, my, my decisions aren't followed by actions. But the reality of the fact, there's still hope. There's always hope. It doesn't matter how many times there's been that failure. It doesn't matter how many times there's been that falter. The fact that Jesus Christ is strong enough to change us. Like I said, not just the fact that he's strong enough to save us when we die, but that his power here on earth is strong enough that it can change those situations today. It can change those situations in a week and in a month if we really, really work on them. I know it's crazy to think about, but literally, you could ask my temptation team and they wouldn't tell you anything more than just yes because obviously there's confidentiality in it. But literally within these last two months of temptation teams, God has helped me completely destroy things in my life that have been strongholds for years. Within the last two months, me being a Christian for, God, I don't even know anymore. Seven, eight years. I, don't, I really honestly don't know. I don't put much of a date on it, but I mean, after years and years and years, just being able to conquer things that have been strongholds and problems for years. Jesus Christ is strong enough. When we get that resolve and we say, God, I don't want this to be my life, and I'm willing to turn the fact that Jesus Christ is strong enough to come in and to take that resolution and just to inject steel into it. Man, to make us just rigid in what we believe and rigid in our response to that. There is hope. I'd say one thing, and this isn't to offend anybody, but it really is true, and this is just out of, out of respect. And this is like Paul speaking to Peter here. If you say you're a Christian and you consistently have this, this heart and this mind change, and you never, ever see action. If you say you're a Christian, and this is the norm, this isn't the rarity, and even to the fact where, you know, God, I don't even, what was the last thing that I actually took action on and I actually changed in my life? I don't want to sell me one bit, but I think you need to take a step back. If you can't look at the fact that you've had repentance, you've changed in your mind, and you've taken action in something in your life, and you can't point something out that you're actually working on, that you have moved past, not to sound mean, but take a step back and say, have I really actually given my life to the Lord then? Because that's what our lives are called to be as Christians. 
Our lives are called to be a life of repentance, of things being pointed out to God, us repenting of them, and changing our lives. If you say, you know what, this, is, this doesn't happen at all in my life, take a step back. Take a step back and really take a look at it. Like I said, I don't do that to, to offend anybody. I do that because out of fear that people can be confused. Maybe you really haven't given your life to God. Maybe you really haven't asked him to be the Lord of your life and to take over. Because like it says, Jesus has the power. And there should be victories. There should be victories. Some people have started a relationship with Jesus Christ, but tonight they need to look at their lives and they need to epistrophine. Turn. There are things that need to be dealt with. Acts 26.20, which is now going to become one of my favorite verses. I'm going to memorize this, and I'm going to say it to people all the time. I love it. It says, Paul says, I preach that they should repent, turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. Exactly. Repent, have that heart change, turn, prove it. Prove it with your deeds. Have you proven your repentance by your deeds so far? If you've not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, tonight's tonight as well, but if you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and you say, man, I haven't done anything about it, tonight is the night to truly repent and to turn. Or maybe there are others who have been Christians for a while. Man, I have turned plenty of times and I've changed things, but maybe you've lost focus. Maybe you've been holding on to things that aren't good for you. Maybe you haven't been doing the things that God wants for you. You haven't been doing the good that you know you're supposed to. When I was in prayer at the college, um, gosh, was it two months ago? Whatever, when we, when we prayed the night before um, we went to, uh, we started the thing. It was the other night that you were here. That's funny. Um, the night when we prayed, I was just asking God, I'm like, God, what's the deal? Seriously, what do you want to point out? And you know, the heaviest thing that fell on my heart that night was that you aren't going to see productivity if people continue to hold on to their pet sins. And I was thinking about that, I'm like, wow. Like, obviously, that registered in my life, but it registered as us in a community. I haven't really got to share that with you yet, and that's kind of why I did this repentance, this repentance continuation. But the fact that God is saying, you can't hold on to those sins. You can't say that I'm going to give you everything except this. It doesn't work. And he says that you're going to stifle productivity. You're going to stifle productivity when you don't do that. As a group, as a group, we all individually make up this group. If we don't let go of those things, we're going to stifle what this group can do, what Steadfast can do. We can't keep sins to ourselves. We can't partially let it go but keep some remnants. This came to my mind to think about it. Don't let sin hang around. Seriously, think about that. Remember it. Write it down. Don't let sin hang around. If you say you want to change, and if you say you want to give something up, give it up 100%. Don't give up 90 and keep 10. Don't give up 85 and let 15 just dawdle around your house. Don't let sin hang around. Completely destroy it. It's not good enough to say, I won't do that anymore. You need to take and move so far to destroy the thing that you won't do anymore. Completely get rid of it. Don't let the sin hang around you. By Christ, just like it says in Romans 8, all of this can happen. We can truly repent. It says in, a, in, in Ecclesiastes 5.4, I like this. If you guys are saying, yeah, tonight's the night, I'm going to repent. It says in Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you tell God you're going to do something, 
do it now. Don't tell God, yeah, I'm going to repent. If you said you're going to repent, now. If you said I'm going to get rid of this stuff in my life, tonight. If you say I'm no longer going to be part of that relationship, call them an hour after service tonight. Now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but now. This is the time to actually respond. You have to respond with action. Next week is our three-quarter move message. Three-quarters of the year has already gone by. Next year, in pairing with that and in response to this, I'm going to have a container up here. And anything that you identify tonight linking to something you're let hanging around, things that God's going to put on your heart that you want to completely get rid of, you can come and bring and put in this container next week. And this can be anything. This can be anything. This can be something as simple as, you know what, I have these books that I read that I don't like anymore. You can bring them and put them in. It can be movies that I watch, and you know what, I don't care for that anymore. You know what, it could be notes from a relationship that you used to have that you don't need hanging around anymore. It can be a reminder. It can be something small. You know what, it could be that gift, girls, from that guy who you're still holding on to. It could be a pair of shoes for all I care. Whatever it represents, whatever that thing is that you struggle with, if there's that thing that you need to do next week that you just bring it and say, you know, I'm done with it. And you leave it here and you say, it's, it's done. It's over. You bring it and all this stuff is just going to be destroyed, gotten rid of, burned up, smashed up, thrown away, gone. It's true response. Jesus Christ talked about that. We had a, whole, we had a, a message where he talked about that. In fact, it says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus Christ said that. I know it sounds crazy, right? He's preaching to people, and he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He says, you know why? Because it's better to enter heaven with one hand than to go into hell with two perfect ones. That's how serious sin is. That's what God's saying. Not enough just to let it hang around and just be like, oh, yeah, you know, just, you know it's cool. God says you cut it out, like cancer. You know what? You don't, you don't take and go to doctor. You know what? I know we got this cancer. Why don't you just cut out like 90% of it? Leave that last little bit in there for me. I want to, yeah, it's not that bad. I don't mind that part. Just leave it for me. It's cool. You know what? I just, I just won't really worry about it too much. No, you cut out 100% of it. You cut out 100% of what's trying to kill you, and you get rid of it. That's the response that you need to have. Look what we'll have next week. Seriously, anything. Think about it this week. Pray about it. And next week, bring something. Bring something that you know is, is standing in your way and say, you know, I'm done with it. I'm done. Don't let sin hang around. Move this week. Move. Cut sin out drastically. So for tonight, we change around this whole service and for a reason. Because I wanted to follow an example of repentance set in the Bible back in Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah was a man who was helping rebuild the temple. A really, really cool story. But there come this time where God really called him to this place of repentance. God called, I believe it was through Nehemiah. It's been a while since I read the book, honestly, but this, this action that I want to look at stands, stands all the same. But he called the people of Israel to a place of repentance. And it was because of their dealings with foreign people. I know it sounds mean, but here's the deal. What happened is Israel was dumb. They'd get locked in with foreign people, and they'd start believing in their God. So God said, separate yourself from foreign people. Keep yourself separate so you can focus on me. It wasn't anything about hating other people or nothing like that, but it was just because of that focus. It says this, Then on the 24th day of this month, 
the people of Israel gathered for a fast, wearing burlap and faces smudged with dirt as a sign of repentance. That's Nachum. That's that repentant heart. It says the Israelites broke off all relation with foreigners, stood up and confessed their sins and iniquities of their parents. That's metanoia and epistrephine. That change and that action, that turning with it. It says, while they stood there in their places, they read from the book of the revelation of God, their God, for a quarter of the day. Quarter of the day. That's six hours. They stood and they confessed their sins. And they said, this isn't going to be me anymore. And they read God's word. We're not going to do that tonight. We're not going to stay here for six extra hours to do that, unfortunately. But what we are going to do is we're going to follow this by temptation teams. And inside of that time, I want you to focus just like these guys. They come in repentance, and they said, you know what? This is my sin, and this is not who I want to be anymore. I want to turn from this. And in those groups, like, what's beautiful about that is we can be extremely candid because it's boys with boys and girls with girls. And we're going to do that same exact picture of what they did here. And it says, for another quarter of the day after this, they confessed and worshiped their God. And that's how we're going to finish tonight. After we get done with temptation teams, we're going to take and go into worship. And you know what I really, really like about this? Is the words that you use here. It says, for a quarter of the day, they confessed and worshiped their God. It's not talking about confessing their sins that we just talked about a second ago. It's confessing that God is your God. And confessing always sounds really, really bad, doesn't it? You've got to confess your sins. It sounds really dirty. You have to confess. It's like putrid. But what it's talking about is the fact that just like confessing, putting out to the open, saying, I'm a sinner, the same exact heart that we come together and say, he is my God. He is my God. And I confess it out loud. Man, if you guys don't sing out loud, sing out loud tonight. Confess that he is your God. Confess out loud and say, you are my God. And sing some of those words. You don't have to sing all of them. Man, a lot of people in this room have bad voices. I don't mean to criticize anyone. Right here, worse tonight, even worse. Tonight, horrible. But just confess that he is God and worship him. That's how we're going to finish tonight. So I need you guys to really, really repent tonight. Take and have that heart change. Have that mind change. And follow it. Follow it by your actions. I want to pray, and then I want to move into temptation teams. Lord, I thank you just for the message that you've spoken, Lord God. And I pray to you that you would just work in people's, in people's hearts right now. Holy Spirit, I pray to you that you would not fall short, that you would infiltrate each and every person's heart, and you would put a spotlight on something. That when we go into temptation teams, even if it's something small, it stood out in our lives, we say, you know what, this isn't right. I just pray to you, God, that you would truly work in this, that you wouldn't fall short, that you would really, um, you would give us that conviction to lead to repentance. And I pray to you that we really would truly repent, that we wouldn't just partially, but that we would completely follow through, Lord. God, Nacham, Metanoi, and Epistrephine. I thank you, Lord, for tonight. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. To the stars and